You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And I'm joined today by Melissa Hannum, who is a senior research associate in the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. How's it going today, Melissa? It's uh, pretty busy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So I'm really happy to have you on since it's been, what, about 60 hours, a little less maybe, since both of us watched and, well, no, it's actually been a little more, but since both of us watched and live tweeted North Korea's big military parade on Friday night, Saturday morning in Asia, which was quite a show, wasn't it? It was. Um, sometimes parades can be kind of humdrum and boring. That's never the case in North Korea. They always make it a real show. Um, and I think we were told to expect something new. And I know for myself anyways, I was like, yeah, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be the Pukuk Song 2. And so as they just kept rolling out more and more and more things, you could probably tell on Twitter due yeah. to my unsavory language. That, yeah, that so I'm just going to, you know, uh, I think iTunes, uh, we don't have an explicit rating on iTunes, so I can't actually <laughs> tell our listeners what Melissa's original reaction was, but it was a four-letter word. Um, I think there were a few extra letters to emphasize what a big deal it was. But anyways, we're going to talk about, um, you know, a lot of, um, there's a lot to discuss here. So North Korea definitely showed off more than any of us bargained for. Um, you know, the North Korea missile watching community, I think, had expected to see the Pukuk Song 2, which we saw in February that I discussed on a previous podcast. That was the big, you know, the solid fuel missile on the tracked transporter reactor launcher that they showed off near Kusong. Uh, but we also expected to see their submarine launch ballistic missile, the KN-11, for the first time. And while we did get both of those, we got a little bit extra. So, um, Melissa, you know, um, a lot of our listeners, I think, um, you know, are definitely interested in the subject material. But, you know, when we talk about missiles, things can get really wonky and technical. So I think the approach that I'm going to take here is to kind of go through a glossary of missiles. And, uh, you know, you're definitely the right person to talk to about this stuff since, um, you know, you're obviously a real expert here. So, you know, I want to talk through like some of these developments that we've seen out of North Korea system more recently. And we can talk about them specifically in the context of what we saw in the parade. So, you know, I want to go through... Um, I want to go through the significance of terms like solid fuel, why does that matter? Canisterized missiles, why do those matter? Tracked transporter erector launchers, or TELs, why do those matter? So let's, you know, kind of use that, and then we'll uh, talk about some of the more interesting systems that they showed off, um, including their new giant mystery canisters. Um, so why don't we start with solid fuel, which I think is something that, you know, the North Korea watcher community has been talking about quite a bit for actually the past year or so. Um, do you want to kind of walk us through the differences between, um, you know, solid fuel missiles and liquid fuel missiles and why North Korea would be interested in moving from liquid to solid? Sure. So I mean, we've been worrying about solid fuel for a long time now. Um, North Korea had the what's called KN-02, which is a short range solid fuel missile. And um, so we knew they were interested in it, but not a lot happened up until very recently. Um, last year, we saw the test of a solid fuel engine, and um, you might have seen the pictures. They usually test these horizontally rather than vertically, like a liquid fuel engine. And uh, some of my colleagues geolocated it. We took some measurements from the photograph using um, satellite imagery and ground photos to get a sense of how big it was. And at first, we weren't sure what they would use it for. Um, but later, you know, once we saw the pictures of the SLBM, we saw that they had actually put it into the SLBM and that we were seeing a solid flame 
coming a solid fuel flame coming out of it. The big advantage for North Korea between liquid and solid fuel is that solid fuel probably shaves a few minutes off of their launch time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so the liquid fuel missiles, at least the liquid fuel that North Korea uses, is pretty corrosive. And I think there are like, you know, to, so to put a giant asterisk on this, there may be a couple of cases where SCUD missiles were stored vertically in order to reduce the corrosion from liquid fuel. But generally speaking, the liquid fuel that North Korea uses, which is kerosene and red fuming nitric acid, uh, really bad corrosive stuff, and, and basically it rots out the insides of their missiles. So they keep the missiles empty, and then they drive them around on trucks with like a convoy of support vehicle, including fuel trucks, and then they drive it to where they want it to go. Um, they erect the missile on the back of the truck, fuel it up, takes, um, no one's sure exactly how long in the open source, but maybe around 90 minutes, Okay. and then they launch it. Right. And so, um, you know, that extra time can give people a little bit more warning. And the larger number of trucks in the convoy gives a kind of distinctive signature for satellite imagery as well. And so we were sort of taking those factors into account when we were thinking about where you might hide these trucks uh, and how quickly they could launch them. And I guess, uh, solid fuel. yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, when I when I think about, you know, my initial reaction to the solid fuel test, and I think, you know, maybe I talked to you about this um, back in the day, but, you know, a starting off with a submarine, I think made a lot of sense, right? I mean, because there's also safety concerns with liquid fuel on a submarine. Yeah, and we definitely, I mean, so they had some launches with liquid fuel that I don't think any of them worked, um, to be honest. And um I think they did actually blow up poss- or damage. There were rumors that they damaged one of their submarines. They were using um, an underwater platform at mm-hmm. first, which is normal. All countries do it. Um, but they were pretending that they weren't. So they they would put together these video montages where you'd see Kim Jong-un pointing at a submarine and then it would cut to like borrowed footage of the U.S. Polaris uh, launch, and then it would cut to something bursting out of the water like it worked. Um, and when I, one of my colleagues, Catherine Dill, actually did an awesome piece uh, busting the, one of the SLBM launches. I remember that, yeah. From last year, or well, actually 2015 technically, but the footage came out last year. And um, so they were using all these tricks. And and once they moved to solid, though, then they actually got a few successes that were pretty notable. Um, We use a lot of software to analyze still photos, too. And while there's generally a lot of faking or, you know, altering, I guess I'll say, on some photos, especially when you're showing Kim Jong-un, there's like his ears photoshopped and... Every, all the medals are shined up on the general's chests and these kinds of things. Um, but sometimes they actually like materially put together composite images, which mm. are fake. And at least the you know more recent SLBM launches, those looked fairly untouched, or at least not the missile itself. And so I think we had a few successes there. Right. And then my colleague Jeffrey, he was the one who who sort of prophesized that they would just take that solid fuel SLBM and move it up on land, just slap it on some kind of a truck. And so that's what we saw this year. 
Right. So I think that was a great intro to the solid fuel issue. And I'm really glad you brought up this deception thing, too, because that's something I want to come to later in this conversation. I've been getting a lot of questions about, you know, some of the systems we saw, and I'm sure you have, too, about these giant ICBM-sized canisters, the degree to which they're, you know, empty mock-ups designed for kind of deception and and psychological messaging. Um, But, you know, what was interesting with this parade, I thought, was we got so many great high-resolution images from the Western press that was there. Um... And, uh, you know, I wonder um, how how useful that's been to your team. I should actually, you know, maybe talk a bit, um, you know, give you an opportunity a bit to, to talk about what your team does, since I think it's pretty unique and you guys have been featured quite a bit more uh, recently in the Washington Post, the Times. So do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, the kind of work that you guys do with open source intelligence in North Korea? Sure. So first of all, I would like to take full credit for the team. It's absolutely my team. Everyone reports to me. I'm the boss. And that's totally not true. Uh, So Jeffrey Lewis is clearly the boss of the team, but uh, we have a lot of latitude and I think uh, we all have slightly different skill sets and we work together pretty well. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, you know, Jeffrey Lewis is like the maestro that conducts the orchestra. Um, I focus a lot of my work on um, satellite imagery, but more and more people are doing that with me. Um, Catherine Dill focuses a lot on the video editing, but more and more people are doing that. And then Dave Schmerler is the whiz of geolocating, you know, so uh, taking a photograph and figuring out where it happened. And, and then there's other people. So there's, there's people like Brian Lee who use text data from social media and elsewhere. And, um, you know, um, and then there's some new people too, like Michael Dutzman and Shay Cotton who are taking... Um, a lot of text data as well, and also doing some of the geolocation kind of stuff. So um, we all work together, and um, typically what happens, I mean, none of us have clearances. I'm not even an American. I mean, most of us just um, use open source text data, numeric data, like trade data, social media, um, photographs, video, all these kinds of things. And, um, you know, it, for me anyways, it always sort of started out of just the sparsity of information available for North Korea. So, you know, even when I started researching North Korea like 13 years ago, I, you know, I couldn't go there, you know, I, I, I couldn't um, interview people. Like it was even talking to defectors was very risky for the defector. So I started using Google Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it was a source of free imagery. And it still is a fantastic resource of historical. A, a lot of people don't realize you can actually use a time slider on it and go back in time in a lot of these places. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, so I, so I gradually started teaching myself satellite imagery analysis. And with, I think the, the strength of our team is that we can merge all of this information together into like a single an analytical piece. Um, whereas in a lot of places that information is kind of siloed and the skill sets are separated. Right. And then very much to the annoyance of our director, um, we all just shout at each other in the hallways and, uh, we, we use a Slack channel to debate at all hours of the day. If not Twitter. If not Twitter, it used to be much more on Twitter, but I've noticed actually I should watch my mouth a bit more now that I have more followers, but it used to be no one cared what I thought. So I just sort of talked out loud on Twitter. Right. But uh, I've tried to take some of that offline, especially the swearing now. 
Well, yeah, you know, I know that you guys are getting a lot more attention, but I just want to emphasize to our listeners that, um, you know, Melissa's team, um, Melissa, Jeffrey, all of these guys are just absolutely um, invaluable when it comes to North Korea. Um, Whenever there's a test, um, often, you know, the first feeds I check to see what they're thinking. um, It's, you know, you really got to follow these people if you're interested in keeping up with the latest of what's happening in North Korea. Uh, So, Melissa, I guess with that, uh, let's return to the parade, if that's okay with you. Sure, of course. Cool. Um, so I guess the next term um, that I want to talk about a bit is canisterized, um, which, you know, has been thrown about a lot. Um, but it, again, means something particular. And I think it segues particularly well from solid fu- fuel. So you want to walk us through what a missile canister is and what specifically North Korea showed off at the end of the parade that made kind of all of us freak out? <laughs> yeah, so uh, let me start with the Pukuk Song 2. So I mentioned that they took the SLBM, the Submarine Launch Ballistic Missile, and moved it on land. The way they did that was by putting it into a canister. And so if you look at the Pukuk Song 2 um, or KN-15, um, what they've got is like a long tube on top of what looks like kind of like a tank. It's got caterpillar treads. It's, it's fairly high up. And that canister is able to kind of control the environment. So like the temperature and the humidity for the solid fuel missile inside. Um, so we, we expected to see that because like I said, they tested it in February. What we didn't expect particularly was at the very end of the parade, they, they showed off two new, very, very large canisterized systems at the end. So, um, you know, there were some that were on kind of like flatbed trucks, mm-hmm. and I'm a fan of crowdsourcing, and we have not yet identified the brand of truck for that flatbed truck yet. So if you have any listeners in the region who might recognize that brand of truck, just feel free to tweet at me, M. Hannum, on Twitter, because we're still trying to identify that truck. Okay. The second mm-hmm. truck we had seen before, and we'd, been, we'd seen it since um, 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, illicitly procured from China, um, and that's the Wanshan 51200 truck. It was sold as a civilian truck for moving lumber, um, but of course, in 2012, when they showed it off, um, it had a missile on top. And uh, over time, I, I worked with Jeffrey Lewis, and we geolocated the facility where they adapted those trucks, and we could see that basically North Korea took the shiny red civilian version of this and then added all the hydraulics and things on the back of the truck uh, in order to turn it from, you know, basically a very valuable chassis with wheels into an actual transporter erector launcher. For the KN-08 ICBM. Right. And and back in 2012, when I was writing about this truck, um, I noted that like the missile, the KN-08, seemed quite small for that big a truck. Um, that you'd expect something more like the size of Russia's Topol on top. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I, I guess they were thinking forward um, because what they showed us on, on the back of that truck is an enormous canister that comes way over the front of the cabin and you can actually see why they needed a truck that big. Right. Or and we can just blame so, you for it, right? They read your post and they said, hey, Melissa's got a good idea here. Why are we putting the can on the truck? <laughs> um, no, but you know, like... Um, what they did with the KN-08 is also interesting, right? They they transported it to the smaller Musudan um, tell. Yeah, so so honestly, like the beginning of my frustration and swearing in the parade was was that system, 
because at first I thought, okay, that's a mucidon with a different nose cone, but wait, no, it's much longer. And and so now going back and looking at, because we, we've already seen the mucidon truck many times, the, the tell. Um, so we, we know about how big it is. Uh, so we can see that it, at least for now, like before we do really, really accurate measurements, um, we're going to say that it looks like it's maybe a, a two-stage KNO8 with a different mm-hmm. nose cone on the end. But I actually feel like more confused about this system than many of the others still. Um, I'm yeah, going to have gonna, to measure that one really carefully. I was going to ask about the length because you remember we saw those reports in January of a mystery missile that was an ICBM right. from Yonhap and nobody really knew what that was. And I think it was a 15, what was it, a 15-foot well, missile? So in October, I mean, in, in October, there were two launches from Kusong Air Base, right. or the air base near Kusong, I should say, Yeah, that... Um, that a lot of people, I, or I think maybe Pacific Command said it was a Musudan. Yeah, the panel but, of experts also said it was Musudans. So right, so, but we measured it a few times, and it, it didn't seem quite right either. We were working from Planet Imagery, which is a really great resource because of its high frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so basically, there were no images from Digital Globe or Airbus or any of the other usual suspects of that location. And Planet was amazing because we got images almost every day of that location. So we could see them like laying out corn and drying it. We could see um, the first explosion on the pad. And it, and it almost caused like a shadow from the explosion on the airfield. Right. And then a second explosion, which was much tighter, smaller, but still like clearly a failure. And then the day, like a couple of days after that, they came back and like painted the road just to hide it all. So uh, we were really lucky to have those images from Planet, but um, spatially, Planet provides like medium resolution imagery. So when we take measurements from it, your error of margin, your margin of error is bigger. So we couldn't quite discriminate between a Musidon or something bigger, but our, our sort of our guts were telling us it could have been bigger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, the story of this parade was that not only did we see new systems, we saw new configurations of older systems, too. Um, Definitely. And, and we yeah. saw all these new tells uh, with the tracks. Uh, actually, that's, uh, you know, something that you mentioned earlier. And very quickly, do you want to just talk a bit about why the tracked tell is so important for what North Korea is trying to do ultimately with its nuclear um, capabilities? Sure. So the tracks to me are in some ways more immediately of, they're definitely, they're more immediately of concern. So like the huge ICBMs are scary to Americans, but those um, canisterized ICBMs that are probably just empty design concepts for now and over a few years, they will become more and more real. That's not to say we shouldn't get involved. We definitely need to, uh, to to nip that in the bud. But immediately these these, uh, tracked trucks are more concerning to me because what what they're starting to do is for a long time getting those wheeled chassis from other countries was like a point of constraint. It meant that the number of launchers they had to launch the missiles was was somewhat constrained because it was, you know, they have to keep these mobile to keep them survivable. They're they're sort of playing this um, shuttle game where they drive them around the country all the time. Right and um, 
you know, the more launchers you have, the more missiles you can launch without having to go and reload. And North Korea basically has like no time to reload in this scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So the more missiles they can launch at once, the better for them, the easier to try to overwhelm THAAD, for example, that kind of thing. Right. So when they tested the Pukuksong 2, it actually wasn't too far from one of their tank factories. And um, what they've done is taken, I think, some of their indigenous tank um, capabilities and they're trying to roll out these trucks to make more of them. So the, the number of possible tells is, the num is one of the concerns. But the other thing is the, the way we tend to track these trucks is by using signatures related to uh, these wheeled chassis. So... Um, especially like the larger missiles, they have like wide turn radiuses. Um, you know, we can sort of, we know like what the, what grade of, um, hill they can go up and down and they definitely can go off road, but they're so valuable and they're so careful with them that they generally don't, which means we can sort of reduce the total surface area of North Korea that we're searching to, you know, nice gradual turns on paved roads. Uh, and we've already identified a number of these facilities. So we, we kind of like got the sense of where they were going. With these um, treaded caterpillar trucks, they can make much sharper turn, right? They can turn one set of tracks forward, the other back, and, and do a, like a pretty sharp turn. They can definitely be off-road. You know, they're slow, they're not great for moving around the country. You could put them on trains or you could put them on other trucks. But um, but they're probably really great for hiding. Right. You can hide them in caves it's, anywhere. Right. So especially with um, solid fuel where you wouldn't have to keep, like, so you could keep them preloaded. You could keep them, you know, I don't know, under some trees even, and then just drive them out and launch pretty quickly. So to me, th this is actually sort of the more immediate concern. Right. Um, so these are medium range missiles. Um, they are, you know, solid fuel. They have so a quicker launch process, pretty easy to hide. Doesn't have to be, um, you know, connected to uh, a known base by, you know, these really broad curves and nice paved roads and stuff like that. The other other tip offs. Um, so to me, these are actually probably the most more concerning of what what's going on right now. Yeah, no, I completely see eye to eye with you on that. I mean, when it comes to preemption and U.S. South Korea operational plans, um, they're just trying to make that as hard as possible and possibly impossible um, for the U.S. and South Korea to be confident in, you know, that they can disarm North Korea of its uh, nuclear weapons. So that's a really concerning development, I think. Um, and it's good for that to get attention. Because, you know, I mean, a lot of people were really excited about this prospect of a nuclear test, and we didn't get that. And I guess one of the points that uh, I guess I've been trying to communicate um, in my writing on North Korea lately is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that's going on with their missile programs is equally concerning. I mean, we've already seen five nuclear tests. Um, and, you know, like going back to the nuclear issue, Melissa, do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, where they are with their physics package and their miniaturization? Um, you know, obviously they showed off the famous disco ball last year. Um, but, uh, you know, can they put that on their missiles yet? Yeah. So, um, so a few asterisks to go along with this conversation. I mean, they've had five nuclear tests. Odds are after five tests, you can make a warhead compact enough 
to to fit uh, on a, a missile. Um, so that disco ball that they showed us um, again, I don't have ex- like I don't have X-ray vision. Uh, the imagery analysis only takes us so far. Mm-hmm. We um, can tell you that that particular photograph, um, the really high-resolution one of Kim Jong-un standing behind the sort of almost spherical object, it's not actually spherical, and then in front of the KN-08 ICBM, um, that photo was not touched. Like, it was pretty, I mean, other than, um, you know, the fact that it was produced and sent around on different wire services, we didn't see anything that indicated some kind of digital alteration of that photo. Right. But that being said, I would not put the leader of North Korea right next to the live thing. So it probably is a model of some kind. Um, but there are a lot of attributes from the outside of that model that make it seem plausible. Um, I don't really like getting too deep into weapons design. Uh, one, because I'm not an expert. Like I said, the weapons design is largely classified, and I don't have that kind of I don't have that kind of skill set. But in the open source, you know, you can gather a lot of photographs you can take measurements you can absolutely make a 3d model of that thing and you can learn a lot about it Mm -hmm. so you know making a rough rough guesses on the weight and the size of that thing it probably does fit on actually quite a few of their missiles and that tracks with what we're seeing in kcna publications Mm -hmm. where they um you know they they sort of said they've made a standardized weapon and if that means like a weapon that would fit on the Nodong, the Musudan, the Kano 8 and all these new things, then yeah, they, that warhead probably can fit it on. Um, that being said, I don't think North Korea is satisfied with its nuclear program. Um, probably what they're working towards, mostly because they keep announcing, is a thermonuclear weapon. So this would be probably an order of magnitude larger than anything we've seen before mm-hmm. um, from them. Um, and well, a fully you know, staged one, right? Because they they claim to have tested one, but we think it's boosted. Yeah, I mean, so again, with just the seismic data to go on, it's pretty hard to make these kinds of models. Sure. Um, there's like maybe three or four equations floating around for estimating the yield of nuclear warheads. But they're built off of testing at Nevada, testing in Novaya Zemlya, or ver- various versions thereof. And in those cases, we knew exactly how much material was going down in the hole. We knew how deep it was going. We knew, ex- you know, we knew about the geology of that particular place. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of unknowns in North Korea where all we have is seismic signature, and we don't have, we don't know how much they put down there. We right. don't know anything about the, not at least not a lot about the geology or the depth. But again, um, my colleagues, you know, sort of using open source, um, have done some really amazing things. Um, so I actually didn't work on this, but Jeffrey Lewis, uh, along with some of our students at the Middlebury Institute, put together a 3D model of the Pungi Renuclear Test Site. And so we knew from satellite imagery the where the entrance to the tunnel was, what the bearing of that tunnel was. And then we knew from um, Stephen Gibbons' seismic analysis, um, he works for NORSAR and is a, a really great seismologist there. We knew that these explosions 
like where they were located um, at least sort of in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. So we could sort of connect those dots essentially. And what, what we got after connecting those dots is actually what looks a great deal like the uh, P tunnel at Nevada. So unfortunately, I think what we've learned is that North Korea is using declassified uh, U.S. documents to perhaps make their tunnels. Um, the other takeaway from that model that we learned is that, yeah, I, and I made a mistake. Back in January of last year, I said I didn't think the mountain was big enough to handle a thermonuclear test without having some kind of cave-in or something. But no, probably it could. Um, so we could have a thermonuclear test at that site in the future. Right. Um, we've definitely seen that they've, you know, in recent satellite imagery, that there's there's a new tunnel, um, and they've excavated quite a lot of soil out we call this like a spoil pile and we can sort of see how much dirt is displaced but it's really tough to actually measure because the water washes it away and you know it gets blown around and stuff a little bit Um, but we can see they've excavated quite a bit Um, we can see they pumped some water out of there recently and there's been lots of vehicle activity around there so that's why people were thinking possibly they were ready for a nuclear test but again, we can't see down into the mountain yet, unfortunately. So it's sort of like the conditions are possible, but that doesn't mean they're actually going to do it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's definitely something to look forward to. And it sounds like the, you know, it's always the question of um, when, not really if, with North Korea's sixth test, unfortunately. Um, Melissa, I know we're running out of time, but very quickly, I wanted to ask you about one more system that we saw. This was the, you know, what looked like a scud or a nodong on a tracked tail. It had fins on the nose cone. Um, and what's really interesting is just a few hours before we recorded this podcast, U.S. officials unveiled the latest KN missile designation, the KN-17, um, which is what they think North Korea tested near Simpo on Sunday, the day after the parade. Um, and, you know, it sounds like this is an anti-ship ballistic missile. What do you make of that? Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, Jeffrey Lewis, um, my boss, has been doing most of the research on this today. And it does, I agree, Shimpo's a great location to, to test uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles. Um, that sort of tracked vehicle that they showed us, um, you know, it had these sort of fins on the end of the warhead. Um, so it... It, you know, what they were showing us there may be the KN-17. Mm-hmm. We had two failures on from land next to Shinpo um, recently. And in the first one, um, you know, the missile launched. It had a range of about 60 kilometers. And I can't remember the apogee, but it was like 300-something kilometers. So I think it was, it was 189, why, wasn't it? Pardon me? I think it was 189 kilometers. 189? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so it was sort of shot at a lofted trajectory, mm-hmm. but it took nine minutes for the thing to finish, which makes it like the world's slowest missile. So a lot of us had a lot of head scratching. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the next day, so, you know, the next, it was originally identified by a Pacific command as a KN-15, but the next day they came out and said it was probably something like a scud, no dong kind of thing. And if it were cartwheeling, like they described, then you could see how probably it would have a sort of slow, um, descent into the water. And those fins on the warhead may have been the thing that were causing it. Um, this just past weekend on um, Saturday, our time, Sunday in Asia, 
um, they, they tested something else from the same location, but it exploded apparently immediately. So we have even less information about what that might have been. But it kind of makes sense to test the same missile system from that same location. And um, Jeffrey noted that, you know, that both tests were very close in proximity to activities announced or related to the USS Vinson. Yeah. Uh, so it's per- perhaps there was some messaging there as well. You know, you, you can sail your ships over here. We're going to work on our missile that targets them. Yeah, well, I mean, they did the test first, and then the Vincent was, you know, taken away from Australia and taken up. So I wonder, you know, if PACOM actually knew earlier, but they just didn't publicize then that it was an anti-ship missile. And then today they finally decided to go public with that. Because, um, you know, I mean, it does signal some resolve if North Korea is testing an ASBM and you send your carrier up there. Um, but certainly that's interesting. Um, all right, so I'm not going to take up any more of your time, even though I did want to get into some of the left-of-launch cyber stuff that's been going on lately. But we can always have you on on a future episode if you're willing to come back. Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for your time, Melissa. This was incredibly informative, as always. Oh, no problem. Take care, Anne Kit. Thanks, as always, for listening to our podcast here at The Diplomat. If you liked what you heard on that article, um, you may want to check out um, an analysis that I wrote of the North Korean military parade where I kind of go through some of these systems that we saw, not so much the KN-17, which we just learned more about after Sunday's test. Uh, As always, if you're interested in hearing something on the show that you haven't heard yet, definitely feel free to drop me a note on Twitter. I can be found at NKTPND. And if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do so. And also, please do leave us a rating on iTunes. That really helps the show. Thanks for listening.